Welcome, everyone. Today, I have a guest that has been here before, but today is a totally different topic. We have Helene Couvret from Canada, who is a yoga therapist, a mother, a yoga practitioner. You will see how all of these get woven together today. As we talk about what it means to be a caretaker of someone who's dealing with life-threatening illness, or could even be a chronic illness. I think being a caretaker is one of the hardest things we will ever do. And it requires that we give of ourselves unselfishly to this other person for their well-being, possibly at the expense of our own needs. It requires that we give of ourselves selflessly to the point that maybe our own needs are not even being met. However, as you hear Helene's story and the story of her daughter going through cancer treatments at 18 years old, you will see how Helen was able to draw from the reservoir of daily yoga practice and meditation in order to sustain herself for the difficult job of being a caretaker. And one of the other beautiful things is that as her daughter grew up, the first 18 years, she saw her mother and saw her meditating, saw her doing asana practice, saw her having a positive attitude, saw her mother doing visualization. And her 18-year-old daughter was able to tap into those internal resources to get through the very, very difficult nine months of treatment that she's been going through. This is just such a special topic. I know how many of you out there are caretakers for someone else. And I know that you will resonate with a lot of what we're going to talk about in this interview. I know I did because recently I supported one of my family members for a couple of weeks while they were in the ICU. And I think most everything that Helene said today, I experienced. And these are also the tools that I used everything she said, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I did. Oh yeah, that's what I did. And that is to say this this toolbox of tools from yoga and yoga therapy, it's powerful. And it's something that we can draw on to sustain ourselves through these really, really difficult times. So I'm going to leave it at that. It's a wonderful, beautiful interview sit down, have a cup of tea, go for a walk in the woods. And I welcome you to this episode of the podcast. Thanks for being with us. Hello again, everyone. I'm Marita Greenwich, the Marketing and Communications Manager at the International Association of Yoga Therapists, or IAYT. I hope you remember me from last week. I'm here again to invite you to the most exciting yoga therapy event of the year, the 2023 Symposium on Yoga Therapy and Research, or SITAR. This year, SITAR will be held at the Hyatt Regency in Reston, Virginia from June 15th to 17th. The conference features inspiring keynotes, dynamic workshops, and a thought-provoking panel discussion to support your learning from some of the brightest minds in the field of yoga therapy. At IAYT, we are committed to maintaining financial accessibility for our offerings. We are therefore promoting access to SITAR with tuition assistance. 
Anyone in need of financial support to join us for this year's conference can contact us to receive a code for $250 off your conference registration, or that's 50% off the early bird rate. We will do our best to support all requests. Satara's host, IAYT, has been championing yoga as a healing art and science for more than 30 years, and the organization is respected around the world for advancing the profession of yoga therapy. You can learn more about IAYT Satar Conference at satar.org. That's S-Y-T-A-R dot O-R-G. Early bird pricing ends May 19th, so head on over to our website, sitar.org, to register soon. See you in June. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler, and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. And we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Good morning, Helene Couvret. It's so nice to be with you. I woke up early, early in the morning thinking about my day. And I said, oh my gosh, I get to spend time with Helene. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for oh, being here. That's so sweet. I've been thinking about it the whole last week. I've been just looking forward and trying not to organize what I'm going to say, but at the same time being mindful of the headspace of sharing. You know, in season five of this podcast, we've decided to go beyond preaching to the choir. It's not that we don't hope yoga teachers and yoga therapists and people in this field will still listen, but we want the podcast to be something that they can pass on to their loved ones, their colleagues, their family, their friends to say, hey, here's what I do. And here's why yoga therapy is important. Here's what you can expect. We want to reach it to the general public. Mm -hmm. And so when you offered to share the story of what you've been going through with your family and how that intersects with being a yoga therapist and using these tools and technologies to get through difficult times, I was all over it. I was like, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Now it's a very tender topic that we're going to talk about. And there may be some tears because you're going through this real time right now. Mm -hmm. And not going to apologize for the tears because I have a rule about apologizing for tears. Not allowed. <laughs> don't apologize for being a human being with emotions. So why don't you start us off with wherever you feel is the right place to start this conversation? Well, I guess uh, we could start. We just drove back from our monthly now checkup at the hospital with the hematologist. So my daughter, who's given me permission with such grace and even answered some questions that she knew I wanted to kind of ask about today, a year ago, March 9th, and you'll never forget that date. I think anybody out there who's known or had cancer or known someone who has, I don't think you forget that date. It's a crazy thing. She was diagnosed with AML 
and it's acute myeloid leukemia, which is a blood cancer, and not too typical for an 18-year-old. She had just turned 18 and was March 9th last year, so she's now 19, just climbing out of COVID. So she hadn't gone to celebrate 18 in a bar. We can drink here at 18. And she was hit with this. And of course, then, you know, I'll, I'll end that story at the end of it. But she still can't drink for a while. And she just was at her father's for a few weeks and said, Mom, I'm not feeling any energy. I feel faint. I feel like I can't climb upstairs. I had seen her just three weeks before. She lives with me mostly, but she goes back and forth a bit. And I, you know, not seeing her in a teenager and it was COVID and maybe too much time not getting fresh air. I'm just doing the old, just go out, get fresh air. I have, didn't see her. And it got bad to the point where her father said, okay, I'm going to call the pediatrician. She had just turned 18, but he's an amazing pediatrician and can see you that day. And he said, your heart doesn't sound so great because she felt her heart was jumping out of her chest too. Sent her for heart monitoring, sent her for blood test. And she went the next day for the heart. And then she made an appointment at a local clinic for blood test. And so that took about five days later. And it was a Wednesday. Never forget that either. So it was actually six days. Thursday, she saw the doctor. Friday, checked the heart. It didn't look so great. And then blood test appointment was Wednesday morning. She literally went to school to a class, walked upstairs, had to sit, got home to her father telling her, the doctor called you back. It's unheard of for blood tests to have answers in two hours. And they said, we see leukemia. Should we see the cancer cells and you need to get her to hospital now no stopping at go and her father called me and i he's not he's 15 minutes away we met in the middle and first thing i said is i'll go with you and he goes he's got another little one at home and he said if you want to take her in that'd be great and just keep me posted she thought she was anemic yeah. We walked in, and even though in Canada we've got great health care, some people still complain, but I have to say I have been eternally grateful for the Canadian health care. When it's important, you get in. I parked, let her off. By the time I finished parking and walked in, it wasn't 20 minutes before we were called. The doctor had already called the hospital and there was a team in front of us of four people saying, do you know why you're here? And I said, something about leukemia, but you'll be doing more blood tests. He goes, yes, we will to find out what kind, but it clearly is there and it's seen. She had like 90 some percent cancer cells in her blood and we're not going home. You're gonna be in here. So that night, well, immediately after they gave her two pints of blood, if anybody out there understands anything about blood, when they give you blood transfusions, they usually, it's around 120. And she was at 40. Mm. And normally at 70, you get transfusions. So she had two bags of blood and then said, a few hours after that was finished, she says, wow, I feel so much better. At 30, you're dead. So the doctor was, I mean, basically she would have passed out and been, it would have been an emergency situation. Every doctor that we saw a nurse said, you were at 40, like that's just, how are you walking? Let alone being the mindful student in sciences and wanting to get her grades and go to school. I think that's an interesting point because so many times, and even people who have great healthcare, like, like you do, 
I think a lot of times we talk ourselves out of it. Like, Oh, am I just tired? Did I not get a good night's sleep or, but when it goes on for weeks and weeks, we have to really take that seriously. And I think that's one message I want to get out to our audience today that this shouldn't last this long. She's tired for a weekend and sleeps in great. But if things are hanging on like this, that's an excellent point, Amy. And for parents, you know, we tend to think, oh, the kids, whatever. And I didn't see her, but clearly her father thought this is not right. And so, yes, that's an, a very important part. I even have a client who presented with having anxiety to the point where he passed out a couple of times and his parents had all kinds of tests. I have to confess that in the past, you know, as a yoga therapist, I, I'm, I would have asked if you've seen a doctor and have you discussed things, but now I would insist get some blood test ASAP. He has all that done. Everything is negative, so he's fine. But I think on that topic, that somewhere in your gut, like this child never complains, never. She's gashed herself in stitches and can I swim the next day kind of stuff. So I think that in your own gut, we all can ignore that and talk ourselves out of it. We don't want the other side of the spectrum. We're overcompensating to be overcautious and even that creating issues, being anxious. Somewhere in your gut when you know something is not right. And I think a lot of people will say when they go to see a doctor and they say nothing's wrong, but they felt something and they keep going, keep looking, keep going to another doctor, or they st- I think there's a gut feeling that we, we should know. This was an extreme one, like, but she never thought. And one of the questions I had sent her some questions, she kindly was happy to answer and knows she's answering. And she said, what was your biggest feeling when you were diagnosed? The question I often ask, what's your biggest feeling? And this is now this is something I could share with people out there. If you don't know what to say, how to approach someone who's been diagnosed or even living through other traumas, just asking instead of how do you feel, which is often I don't know or hard to explain. I think if you say what's your biggest feeling, for myself, I find it a very useful way of inquiring to help a person's because it might be a swarm of them and help them zero in. She answered, there was not a cell in my body that believed it was actually leukemia until a doctor came in and told me the treatment plan. And I'll get to that story in a minute. And that they actually had found cancer cells in my blood. Now, the doctor said that when he called to say, get to the hospital. I think we all also, it's too big. And our system just shuts off and says, man, that can't be true. And in that moment, I would say there was a sense of numbness. But overall, this experience has been extremely scary. To this day, I have never felt any anger or sadness towards the matter. Those two last sentences just... I have so much emotion about it that she was so extremely scary. And this beautiful phrase of not anger or sadness and I feel the same she's one of my four children my my youngest and I think I've discovered having spent most of nine months in hospital with her in an emotional way of dealing with things she and I are very similar I think she's actually more mature than I am (laughs) but this what she's speaking of is that after the first night in hospital and emergency and the next day we got a room a doctor walked in to explain okay 
you know, by then they had determined what kind of cancer. There were three kinds. By noon the next day, the doctor threw a glass because it was COVID. And instead of getting all the gear on, he called me and I answered and I said, which one? And he said, AML. And I had looked them up. One of them is an easier one to get over for children, but she's an adult, really. AML was not such a good one. So I turned around and she couldn't hear him. So as I turned around, she's there sitting in her emergency bed and, and said, is it the one we wanted? And I said, no. Just said, what does that mean? And I said, well, we're going to have chemo. And of course, the hair, you know, she's a teenager. That's important. That's your mind goes in places. At her age, under 20, it's 68% survival. Mm. Above 20, it's 26% survival. And so I had a bottle of water that was I had drank a bit. She says, like, what does this mean? I said, go through chemo. And I said, and it means that you have a decision you can make right now. Here's a bottle. You're either this water of 68 or you're the air. And she just looked at me, so I'm the water. And I said, okay, let's high five that. And we got this. And because out of all my children, she probably is more open to absorbing because children of yoga therapists, families, friends, they don't always take our advice. <laughs> and she drank that Kool-Aid, like, yes, this, let's do this. Like, we're going to decide that this is going to be okay. But by that evening, we were in a room. The doctor comes in and explains the process. You'll have bone marrow testing. You'll start chemotherapy. There'll be three different kinds of chemotherapy for a seven-day period. Then you'll stay in the hospital and all the information. You know, the plan. And asked her at the end, do you have any questions? And my daughter had one. And it's hard for me to even say, but she just said, do you see me walking out of here alive? And I was watching this interaction, you know, giving her the space. She's 18. This is her disease and being that second questioner. But that question will be something I will never forget hearing my child say. For me, you know, that head on. And I don't know that, that that's a brave question <laughs> to ask. Very brave. Just honest and raw. Raw is right. It's, what else is there to ask in the end, right? But But I have to say many people would be scared to hear the answer and therefore they wouldn't think to ask that question mm. and maybe wouldn't speak it out of their mouth. So that ability of her to say, I want to know the truth. Yeah. And, and to be able to say, I'll face the answer. Because when you're asking the question, what you're also saying is, I'm going to deal with the answer. And I remember in the last podcast, I shared how I had lost a baby just before Tessa. And I remember going for the ultrasound and that technician is not allowed to tell you normally, but I'd had already three children. And I said, I knew there was no heartbeat by the monitor. So now the ultrasound was going to determine and I was watching the doctor's face and it was a woman. And I looked at her and I said, just tell me. And that echo of her, tell me. And she just said, there's no heartbeat. And normally they'd wait for the doctor. I wasn't even in my hospital. I, I think it's a very brave thing to ask, you know, whereas I needed to know anyway, but my daughter didn't need to know that moment. She could have digested another little while the situation. Can I go back? Because I don't know if you remember this. You may have been in a daze, but I mm -hmm. talked to you shortly after all this happened, maybe a week or two. And you said, Amy, you're not going to believe what happened. My daughter got taken. You know, the whole story you just told us. I was in shock for both of you. I remember your reply and I won't say it because I would have to bleep it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
exactly. I'm not one to uh, hold back on swearing, by the way. Some of you know me. I, when, it, when swearing is appropriate, I will, I will swear. And it was but, one of those moments. Yeah. 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 It, that deserves a, the biggest swear word, <laughs> but to the point, can you remember if you used any of your yoga therapy tools on yourself while you were discovering your daughter had leukemia, as you sat there in the hospital, asking these really honest, raw questions, did you fall back into, okay, I'm going to breathe. I'm going to be present. Any of the yoga therapy tools, or was it just, you know, I I can't do that right now. Yeah. I I have to say that I did. And you know, my story from, from the first one, I mean, my brother died when I was 22. That was a shock. He was in an accident and my baby died eight and a half months gestation. And then my dad and my mom was a shock for my dad. He was only 68. And I had that practice, if you will, of shock. And, and in the end, a shocking situation, it logically is the same, right? Or nervous system. Feeling. And of course, then the last 24 years studying and teaching yoga, I'm so grateful to say that somewhere over the years, it has become a reflex to just, okay, I'm going to listen to my breath now. And I know that I'm not sure when it happened. It wasn't an aha moment, but over 24 years, and it's been a while, that just hearing words and hearing breath at the same time, like the breath is going to help me ingest and expel taken the information and I'm not sure I'm just saying this now and I don't know that that was my conscious thought ever in the past but that's how I feel I'm seeing it now like taking the information and then exhale the trauma that I know is going to start to set into my body take it in and let it go we gotta digest this I remember my first thought is oh this is going to take a while the amount of trips with four children in the hospital but normally you're out within a day or two there was a couple times it took a week, things that have happened. My first thought is, oh, this one's going to take a while. Like, this is not a 48 hours in the hospital. We're going to go home and heal. That was my first thought. That facing that right away. Okay, I got it. Now, this is going to be a while. Let's, it's almost like my wheels spinning. Like, my whole life is just about to change for a, a stretch and really for a lifetime with this leukemia because it can reoccur and the older she gets the less survival. So I asked the next question about what's your most dominant feeling now? And she answers, I was just thinking the other day, there's not a single day, do not make a decision. What I do, what I eat, what I buy, what products I use, et cetera, based on fear. Mm. Other than fear, I would say I feel a sense of yearning for life. I have been thinking a lot about my future and how to make sure my life does not pass me by. She's 18. I remember one time she was in ICU. There was every four chemo treatments, it got worse. Your body goes into those out there who know people with cancer and those who don't know when you have treatment, especially heavy duty, three different chemotherapies for every day, all day. You know, there was two hour one, three hour one. Your immune system goes to 0.00. And stays there for a couple of weeks. And in that time, it's not even just people around you. It's more likely, as it was, something within your body. That third time she ended up in ICU and she went into septic shock. And just like the movies I saw, 
ventilator, cardiac teams, three of each, and the doctor rush her from emergency into ICU, where I saw her and witnessed her breathing becoming more and more labored. They were looking at the monitor, but as a therapist, I was watching her breath and I could see it changing. And then I called out, somebody's got to come. She is going down. And she was six days in septic for six days, CPAP machine, the whole thing. And at one point, she just, I had my hand over the little railing of the bed. I never left her side in those six days. And she just held my hand with a sweet little, and she said, Mom, you know, I, I, I couldn't do this without you. And then another, when she started to get better, she said, I don't know how I'm never going to not be afraid. I said to her, what I say to most people is, you're going to be afraid. Let's not deny that fear. We're going to be afraid. I lived every moment with you. But it's now, how do we live with the fear? That's the best we can do. How do we live with the fear and the breathing. So back to answering your question, first was this positive, okay, you're going to be the water, you're going to survive. Then it's not going to hurt. I'm not going to shove it down your throat, but visualize only healing. One doctor, one point after we went through all this, we do a lot of follow-ups and it was a different doctor. There was this tumor in her sinuses that showed up that was just benign and unrelated and she had to have a five-hour surgery with a neurosurgeon and an ENT. That was just another little thing that happened. But one doctor called this, you know, we're putting all this poison in you. And I said, please don't call it poison. This is saving her life. Yeah, I can kill her too, but it's saving her life. So that attitude, and I brought a meditation cushion and I rubbed her feet every day. And I said, whatever you can do, move. And I'll, I'll give a pause and see if you have a question, but she has more answers to how it helped her. But for me, it was listening to my breath. The mornings I was home, I would get up as always, take my bath, close my eyes, and just simply say, this is traumatic, but it will be okay. And just watch my breath happen because denying's not good. And just saying this is traumatic and leaving that there is not good. If I could regulate the breath while I watched my emotions and thoughts, not trying to deny, but just watching them and, and just watching them, what I often say, like on a theater stage, watch the emotions and don't be on the stage as the actor. Sit in the audience and watch them and hear your breath. Yeah. You know, you're reminding me of a couple of things. Recently, I was with my dad for a few weeks also in ICU. And the first thing that came to mind is from the yoga and Ayurveda lens, when we are intersecting with Western allopathic medicine, we know about prana. We know about how the soul leaves the udana vayu, you know, like we know things that is so different from their lens. And it's a little scary to know those things. Cause like you said, you, you were like, whoa, she's crashing here. And they may have known that too in their own lens, but I find that fascinating that we have this whole other lens of the ancient teachings that is also informing us while we're watching the allopathic medicine happen. So that's number one. The second thing I heard you say is you didn't leave her side and she held your hand right there at the bedside. And I think 
anyone who's going through something like this, those people that have the person holding their hand by the bedside have such an advantage. I walked down the halls of ICU. I was there every day for a couple of weeks and none of the other rooms had people there visiting. Nobody was sitting there holding their hands and my dad got out of there, right? And I think that our family calling him, sending him pictures, checking in, sitting with him, I think it made all the difference. Yeah, 100%. When she just said, I couldn't do this without you, I, I think she was 11 days in ICU and then up in the ward, 11 more days. But those 11 days of ICU, six she forgets because she was septic. When she started to come to and held my hand and said that, it's not just a simple sentence. I think it came from her soul, like, I couldn't do this without you. I mean, without going into detail, there's there's bodily functions, there's washing up and mama did it. I said to the nurses, I'm here, I'm gonna, and they didn't ask me to leave because I was a great help. They did the monitors, I'll do her body other mm -hmm. than taking blood and all that. And I asked her what got her through this, what helped you get through this physically, mentally, emotionally? Physically doing a few stretches in bed during tough times to remind myself I'm still capable and feeling good about moving, even though it is small. So I hope people out there hear that. Mm. And I kept saying to her, you don't need to do just, just a little bit. It doesn't have to be much. And she says, and in, <laughs> in Italian, she says, you could also talk about when I was breathing well again, meaning after being on the oxygen, after that, she had pneumonia, of course, that the infection got to her and had to stretch out my lungs because of pain. No doctor in that hospital could have given me that help, that knowledge that you had. Because they had a respiratory person bring a little gadget to see if she could breathe in and, and how that worked for her. And they monitor and they have all the screens, but I could see the breath. And she was fighting to have it off because she didn't know what was happening. And she had a huge pain when she started to feel better like her. And I said to her, I was severe asthmatic as a child. And I said, you know, that your intercostals, those are the little muscles between the ribs. They got to do a lot of work. You're not just using a very calm breath. You're, you're fighting for breath when you're, it was all that for days. And I said, your body is exhausted. The muscles are exhausted. So they're cramping up and now you're feeling your body. And so let's just try to calm in that area and do a stretch, try to give some love to that. And that helped her. She was on, they were giving her meds, which also helped her. But the, she's saying this helped her. Mentally, she said the first few months when she was in there, she meditated a lot. And she would say, when on good days, mom, can you come a little later? Cause she'd bring her cushion in sunlight. She'd sit in the sun and meditate. That helped her mentally and emotionally, she wrote you and having support around me from friends and family. So anyone out there, it's not what you say, it's just being present. This is my quietest child. There was little talking in the days and days of being with her. When she did open her mouth, there would be things like, if you could know, would you want to know what happens when you die? Yeah. yeah. And she has by her bedside books on death and dying, living with, you know, all these titles that it's like just at 18. But these are the conversations. And she knew she could ask me 
I said, no, I, I think that it would change our existence on this planet. That I think I like the not knowing. That was my answer. I don't know what it would not do. Not knowing if you were going to die. What would happen if when you die? She. The question was, when you die, what happens? Would you want to know if you could find if you knew if you could know? Because we all don't know. We have all beautiful religions. We all hold on to or whatever other. If you don't hold on to religion, that's how I felt. So we we would talk about it. She didn't have her own answer yet. She was just wanting to absorb what I was going to say a little bit. But that's what gets us through is that holding the hand. And I saw many people, thank goodness she wasn't in the children's ward because she just turned 18 and I just couldn't walk down those halls. I know that it was easier walking with seniors, but a lot of them were very alone most of the time. I was there as much as I could be and when she was in a good day, I would go home for a few hours. But if she was in hospital, I was there every day. And when she was critical, I was there overnight. Can I ask a tangential question? Like, did you just put all your work on hold for a little bit? Because when I went through something not nearly as serious as this, I set people up to do the jobs they needed to do. But I actually told my family, friends and students, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be here for about four months. And so-and-so is who you call, and this is going to be your teacher, and I'm going to need this time for me, which I think, sadly, some of them resented me for. Oh. But I just knew that, no, you got you to gotta nip this one. This, you you got to take a time out. <laughs> were you able to do that, or were you trying to juggle work at the same time as caring for her? Yeah, you know, the thing is, uh, COVID was just finishing, so I was doing everything online. I was teaching three mornings a week. So the mornings that I was home, I would take a bath, nine to 10 in the morning, do my class and then go there. Because honestly, on the not so bad days, it's like sitting in a room with an 18 year old. It's not normal. It's like, mom, I'm good. She'd rather me come, first she'd sleep. She'd sleep until two, or maybe she'd sleep till noon with all the interruptions and then meditate, do a bit of movement. And then I'd showed up. That was on the better days. And she'd rather me stay and watch a movie into the night a bit and leave when she's ready to fall asleep. That felt better for her. When she was okay and managing, but needed to be in there for all the treatment and all that, and okay is relative. So I would do my classes. And anytime I couldn't, I just, they, everybody knew. And I just like, if I just, but I have other teachers teaching on Zoom for me. So they subbed when I couldn't be there. And then my trainees, I would have some full days until four, a couple times a month. So if it fell in a good time, I would do it till four and then go from four to 10 at night. So there was, sometimes I said, we're off today. And it was obviously no questions asked, but I have to say for me, and I, I honor what you did. It wasn't happening to my body. And so she, of course, no school, like everything stopped. Clearly, there was no way. She just went back to work last week, just a few hours in a local hardware store. She doesn't feel well. She can say, I'm not coming in. But for me as the witness, I needed to regroup. I needed to be her pillar. So for others who are supporting, I think it's important to feed ourselves. And part of that for me was teaching, doing my yoga and teaching, because it was only reinforcing what I needed to practice. Are we talking about how breath changes you physiologically? Okay, well, let's talk about that. Well, that only reinforced me doing what, what I needed to do, the philosophy, the physical releasing through the movement, because I was present and the supporter if it was my body, everything would have stopped. As the caretaker, I think that's such an interesting point because we have a lot of people listening that 
are the caretaker of someone with a chronic illness. I actually found when caretaking for my dad that it was good for me to have a mental break from the fear and the sadness and the scariness of all the stuff that was going on. Go Mm -hmm. teach, remember my dharma, connect with people who are happy and excited and creative to add a little bit of that goodness and that joy in. And I didn't feel guilty about that. I'd go, that would renew me to come back and deal with the hard stuff. And on that note, just for those who are caregivers, find one, two, it was good to have three or four. I luckily have a brother who's in Hong Kong. So I had 24 hours if I needed to make a call and the hospital's 50 minutes away. So I did in nine months, more than two years of driving. And I would drive and call somebody more on the way out because on the way out, I needed to, you know, because I was holding it together to be her pillar and witnessing any parent out there, anybody with a heart out there to witness, I mean, if you don't have children, it's still to read these questions breaks my heart. My 18 year old has to live through this. Um, One time when she got out and and, uh, just the last chemo was just before Christmas. The third chemo was I see the fourth chemo. We thought, okay, we just got it. We had gone, gotten the surgery done because maybe that's what caused infections. This is the last one. Instead of you know, going home, the first one, they keep you. We were there six weeks. We walked in and didn't leave you out. The next one, they kind of give you the chemo for a week and you go home. And if you, as soon as you have a fever, you rush back. And it gives us maybe five, six days at home just to regroup. But the last one, I said, I'm not going home. I, I'm, I'm not taking her home. And the doctors said, no, we're not letting you take her home again. Like it's, it's enough now. Like, cause I said, in I see you, it's only gotten worse and it cannot get worse than this. That's it. Septic shock is that's as far as we're going to go. And she ended up getting an infection, but it wasn't as bad except that it was a liver infection and it's a fungal infection. And I said, okay, let's treat that couple weeks of antibiotics. They said, no, it's six months minimum and she can't drink. So this child is 18, ready to finish her last chemo and go to town and celebrate before she starts the chemo in pill form, which will be for some years to come. No, you can't drink for six months. And even after that, you got to take care for a few months. It crushed her. I think that was the first time I saw it like really what the, mm, you know, like really, that's how we're going to end this puppy. So that conversations, letting it out. And if people out there are not the caregiver, not the cancer patient, but the friend of, just listen. I have no idea what I said half the time. We don't want answers. We don't want positive. Like I was being positive, but the calls were a moment for me to just fall apart. I'll pick it up and get positive in a minute. But first, can I just vomit my fears, my pain, of watching her. And so if out there you don't know how to support a friend or someone you know whose loved one is going through this, just listen. Just just say you can call me day or night and I and that's all. It was just 40 minutes calls on the way home, 10 minutes of silence, you know, to gather myself, figure out who I was going to call. And that is I feel part of yoga therapy, having an interconnection, not being able to let it out and not just keep just busy. We've got to deal with what's happening. I just got this beautiful picture of the web of life supporting your daughter that Mm. she is not well. You are her primary caretaker, 
but you've got this web of other people that you're mm. texting and calling and getting empathy from and being heard and seen, which then you can take that prana or that life force back to being her caretaker. And it, it kind of, you know, maybe those car rides back and forth created that opportunity for time to have those exchanges where you kind of push out and digest and process and then bring in some new life force, bring it back to her. You yeah. Wave in and out every day. I like the web. They probably shared with other people. Oh my God, my sister's going through this. Definitely. And I have to say, she has three siblings and how devastating it was for them. You know, one has little kids, couldn't really see her too much because it was mostly immunocompromised time and the kids are, you know, so that was really hard. Just having their support, one of the siblings started a GoFundMe, you know, because she was thinking, I, I can't go to work, I can't go to school. And it's lasting, you know, where she could at least order things to cover her head and go to dinner when she got better enough to go to dinner, but not better enough to work. That was, And I had then some family help me financially because, of course, I couldn't work the same way. And anybody out there, that's another thing. And don't don't ask. It's not easy for somebody to say, do you need money? Do you need you know this? It's easier if people just say, I'm bringing food. If you can't give money, give food. But there's a lot of cost. There's the gas. And in Canada, again, like parking was covered and there was, there's benefits we have. But still, it's not enough. And just to show up with something, food, your ear, if you don't have enough money to share some food, cooked, cooked meals was amazing to have. Just offer that and just know that that's needed. Listening, food, because we don't know how to feed ourselves in this time. It's just too much to think about. I had like two more questions and answers from her that I'd love to share, but I want to pause and see if you had a question before. I think we have about five to seven minutes left. So I would love to hear her two answers and then kind of summarize from a yoga therapy perspective, what did we learn today? And by the way, you don't have to even practice yoga. This is what helped me with the breathing, listening to my breath. My morning bath was sacred. Having the support, making the calls, receiving the food, not denying that this is traumatic, but not letting that be the end of the sentence. It's a big thing for me. What's the end of the sentence? You should end on a positive. I'll be okay. Even if you're not sure you'll be okay. If you say it, your body will hear it. And movement. I went for walks when I could go in a little later. I go out for walks. So nothing has to be major yoga. Anybody could do these things. So get out and move. For me, the yoga was movement. And so were the walks. It could just be walking. Listen to the breath because you'll know that it changes as soon as there's a trauma happening. That's what just happens. Your breath totally shifts. And if you can regulate the breath, and by regulating, I mean, just try to a little longer slow it down, take a little bit more time to breathe in, don't rush it out, don't rush it in. Just that, don't have to be fancier, and listen. Let it be your soothing lullaby. So movement, listening to breath, any self-care that you can do. Don't be a martyr about it. Just, just be okay with whatever you need to do and have the self-talk, say what's hard, and then just keep telling yourself you'll be okay. Whether you believe it or not, it's a good thing to hear. So those would be my things. And I agree with all of those. Do you? Yeah, oh, yeah. Surprised. I'm surprised. I'm through that caretaking experience. I'm still going through it, really, with my dad. I All of those things 
I did too. I walked every day. I let myself have lemon and almond bars at the local bakery every day. I had yummy, yummy coffee. I meditated and did pranayama in the mornings and told myself it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So everything you said. Amazing. Yeah. I want to also add, Amy, that sometimes the prognosis isn't right. There, there are people who do die. That's a reality. And having lived enough deaths, my mind, of course, went there. And so I would say for that, I had to just keep saying, and it's a hardest thing I had to say to myself. When that thought came up, and I didn't let it come up too much, not, not, I don't like to say I didn't let it, like when it came up, I would just have to say, if the worst happens, I will survive this too. Mm-hmm. That's not easy to say. But I survived my baby dying. I survived my brother dying. I know that I can survive it. I don't want to. <laughs> Every cell in my body didn't want to. But it was still important for me to see that thought up on that stage, sit in my chair and breathe and say, I will continue to survive. I have three other children. I have a life and, and it would be horrible. And it's the last thing. I mean, I don't even have to say that. But to still say, then I'll have to survive. If the worst happens, I will survive. How has this experience affected the relationship with yourself? I have never thought about this before, but now that I think of it, I feel as if there's less connection between my body and my being. Perhaps because I've had to surrender my body so many times to treatment or pain. Other than that, I've observed myself be more forgiving towards myself. She was a high achiever. I've also been indulging myself in self-care activities. Mom is all about that, which is particularly or partially a repercussion of my constant fear and anxiety. I mean, she lives with it. Then I said, did meditation help? And she said, definitely. It is the best way to fully clear your head and manifest right mindset for this kind of situation. I believe this is probably why I have never felt angry or sadness towards this experience. I would absolutely say the same. I think that managing, just trying to be okay, there's no room for anger. I've often told her that anger sucks the life out of you and it's toxic. And sadness, well, I have to say I had a lot of sadness, but it's really nice to hear that she doesn't have sadness. She's left with a lot of anxiety about it, about her body. She says to me now to to tell you guys, talk about the body and immune system, how can it depends on hormones, whether you're happy or depressed. Meditation can relax and calm down heavy emotions and also help you manage them, process them or simply try to forget for a while and escape for a moment while you're meditating. So she heard me when I talked about it. One quick one and then her closing. So this last one is what's the hardest to live with now? And as as I mentioned before, fear I carry now developed into a type of anxiety that I'll have for the rest of my life. Obviously having all your hair fall out is pretty emotionally damaging for a teenage daughter or girl, she wrote. Although it is temporary, for the time being, it can serve as an unnecessary reminder. And she had long hair, gorgeous long hair, and she looks fantastic. Her bald, now her hair is about this big, and it's sassy, and we all love it. 
but for her, it's, it's a reminder. And so finally, what would you want to say to anyone going through this experience? Positivity is the best medicine because in the end, happiness is all that matters. Yeah. I love my baby. Mm. I love all my babies, but this experience to hear her say this is just, and, and I, I, um, as a single mom of four children with a variety of dads, long story short, I've often joked that I'm the only common denominator as the mom. So I'll take credit because we blame mothers for things. I'm taking credit for some of this. <laughs> Good job, mama. <laughs> but I'm also going to give her soul, which is in the last one I shared, I believe Brody, the baby I lost is partly in her as well. And, and she's the wisest out of all of us. We all agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's at times like this, when we get stripped down to the basics that we really realize how much fluff and agitation and things are not needed in our lives and that finding joy and connection is it. That's it. And, and finding ways to be happy that, you know, we had conversations about positivity because I could be a little annoying with my positivity to some people. <laughs> and I, I let that be what they find annoying about me. And, but she shared that, you know, with her friends as a teenager, they're texting and they were very supportive too, but they're doing all their life. And she would love to hear about their life just to take away. And by the way, even my people, they'd say, I hate to talk about myself. And I said, please do. So know that once you finish listening, it's not okay to also have things going on because it takes us somewhere else, but she's definitely never going to be a drama girl. I've often said when my brother dies ever since then, anywhere, anytime, anything, anyhow can happen. And I've said this probably the last podcast. And now my kids truly have lived this. And this was traumatic for them as siblings too. Then I say, unless somebody is dying, life is amazing. Mm -hmm. All the treatment, she didn't die. And for those who have lost people to cancer, I know the losses. So just not to cancer, but I know that I live and still live with that fear of losing her to it. And if it does happen, which it has in my life, those losses is life does continue and it changes you. But for me, if you're alive, then happiness is all that matters. Try to create it. There's, as I say to my kids, pace yourself because there's a lot of, mm, that's going to happen. And we don't count the in-between. Like I said to her on the way home, this was a blip and 18 years of life when you're going to be 80 and those blips are big and they stay really big in the front, the frontal cortex, but there's a lot of in between times and we need to celebrate that. I'll just close with this. There's a fantastic movie, Whoopi Goldberg called the color purple. Mm -hmm. Share this with a young girl who loves to hear about philosophy. It, there's a, a time in the movie, it's a beautiful movie, where there's a huge feel of purple flowers. And these two young girls who are, went through so much, one says to the other, and they're giggling and laughing, it was a happy moment. And they said, I think God would be pissed off if you ran through field purple flowers mm -hmm. and didn't appreciate it. And so I say in all little moments, this is a couple color purple moment. This is a color purple moment. It could be just having sunshine when you walk. It could be watching the rain wash away all the dirt in the streets from the melt. There's a lot of color purple moments, but 
don't piss off God <laughs> or, 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 or don't piss away your life and not see that color purple in the little moments like this one. Mm-hmm. Being able to share with all of you my story is also part of my healing. So I kind of selfishly offer this up, just one more way to get manage this trauma that I'm left with and, and sharing with you, I hope something helped you all. Thank you, Helene. I, I think you telling your story helps you heal, but it also helps so many of the audience members and people we all know and love heal to hear it and to digest their grief of being a caretaker or having debilitating illness or cancer. Like I think this connection, this community, we we heal as a we, not as an I. So I just want to thank you for candidly sharing you and please tell your daughter, thank you for sharing those beautiful, beautiful bits of wisdom with us. I will. Thank you, Tessa, if she does listen to this. I really honor her beautiful soul, and I hope you all do too. And tell the people you love, you love them. Don't waste any time on anger, you know, or sadness. Just it comes, breathe in an hour or a day. Just try to shake it off. Don't deny it, but look around for color purples or pink or blue or red, yellow or green. As we finish for today, I just want to give a big hug and so much gratitude to both Helene and her daughter, Tessa, for sharing so freely with us today about so many really difficult topics. And when Helene and I turned off the recording, I almost wish we hadn't because she and I talked about how even though they have made it through this first nine months of leukemia, and there's probably still a lifelong journey to be had, that she doesn't want to pass this off as it being easy. All of this stuff, listening to your breath, having a positive attitude, you know, it comes from a deep well of having done yoga daily practice for years and years and years and years that you can then draw upon in order to breathe through this, in order to listen, in order to do the self-care that's needed to get through these difficult times. It isn't something that just happens and it's so easy. And Helene told me a beautiful story about a person who lived in a little hut out in the woods and some type of sooth seeker came walking by and said, did you know that there's a treasure underneath your home? It's 12 feet down. And the owner of the little hut said, no, I had no idea. And so decided to start digging to find the treasure. And it wasn't one foot. It wasn't three feet. It wasn't seven feet. It wasn't 11 feet. It wasn't until the owner of the hut got 12 feet down that deep, deep well that they were able to find this treasure. And I think it's the same with these difficult times that we're facing. Digging three feet doesn't really get anywhere. We have to go deep, deep, deep down. And that's where the treasure lies. So I'd love to leave you with that today. And also to leave you with the idea that there are places to get community, to get support. We have a Monday night yoga therapeutics class that we do with Optimal State. 
each month has a different topic. We have both anxiety month coming up, depression month coming up, but we're building a community of people together. Last Monday night, we had four people on the call that were grieving because they recently had a significant other or a parent pass away. And so having a place to commune together with people that are like-minded, that love you, that care about you, that are on this journey with you, so, so critical. I hope you can find that in your community or online, or maybe you want to join us here at Optimal State. And so I leave you with that and just know it's going to be okay and you will survive whatever it is that you're going through right now. And I'll credit that to Helene Couvret. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria and Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.